Sponsor CBT Nuggets is IT training for IT professionals and anyone looking to build IT skills. If you want to make fully operational your networking, cloud, security, automation, or DevOps battle station, visit cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. That's cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. In defense of EIGRP. In defense of? Does it need defending? Some of you might ask, and others of you are daring us to have a discussion that successfully defends EIGRP, because in your minds, there is no defense. Well, no matter which side of the divide you fall on, we are having this EIGRP discussion. We're going to go through major use cases, design considerations, a few scaling tips, and more, and our guest today is Zig Ziga, and you might know him as the voice of Zig's Network Design Podcast, where he discusses how to think about network design with guests and friends from all over the industry. And Zig and I know each other kind of in this way. We know each other from the internet. And you might remember him from Heavy Networking episode 555, where we discuss the top network design trends of 2020. Uh, actually, a really popular episode based on download numbers and stuff. So Zig, hey man, welcome back. I know from listening to several of your podcast episodes on uh, your network design podcast that you are an EIGRP fan. So... So, dude, we got to first address the elephant in the room here. Uh, we're going to jump right into the discussion. I, I want to know, from your perspective, uh, why does EIGRP have a bad rep? Is it like the Cisco proprietary thing? Is there something more to it than that? Yeah, yeah. So thanks for having me back, as always. I appreciate it, Ethan. Um, yes, so I am a big fan of EIGRP, as you're aware. Um, uh, and I, I would say, I think it's situational. I think it's experience-based initially. I think it's probably based on your personal experience and what you kind of started using as a routing person, right? If, if you're using OSPF or EIGRP um, in those first few years in the career, I used EIGRP and I fell in love with it, right? I fell 100% in love with it. So the, the bad reputation part in my take, you're actually, you work at Cisco, you deal with a lot of customers. I think, I think in the federal space, especially, right? That's correct. You got it. So, okay. So to me, the whole reputation of EIGRP being bad is like, it's, you got it because some Cisco partner walked in the door and that's what they knew. And so they threw it in there and you're kind of stuck with it. But the real world uses OSPF because interoperability. Does that sound about right to you? No, it does. It does. Right. So that's usually the use case is, um, Hey, we have to interoperate. We have to work with other vendors, right? We have to work with other hardware, other solutions. And so we can't use EIGRP or we have to do, you know, redistribution, heaven forbid, right? Heaven forbid redistribution between protocols. Um, I think, I think it's, again, I think it's, it's again, it's situational. I think there's some good use cases for EIGRP, but I do think EIGRP has some bad rap. Like people that have done OSPF for years most likely are never going to use EIGRP if they're very fond with OSPF. They haven't had any issues with it. And, and you know, OSPF functions, right? Uh, OSPF works, especially if you design it effectively and correctly at scale. Well, okay. So now you just hit on something pretty interesting here. Uh, OSPF at scale does get to be you have to have a more uh, a deeper thought process as you're doing that design. You've got multi-area, you've got a backbone area, you've got to think about where your ABRs are, you've got to think about where you're going to do route summarization, or if you're going to do route summarization, you need to think about a lot to make sure multi-area works like you want it to do, and you don't make mistakes like, like one of my very first OSPF challenges I ever ran into was a network that I didn't build and I inherited where... 
uh, the network, when uh, when uh, the main line went down, an ISDN backup line came up, only it didn't come up in the backbone area, it came up in this other area, and all of a sudden I got all <laughs> this traffic converging across this mm-hmm. ISDN line that would get very full, which takes away from our discussion my my about EIGRP, because my point is, OSPF, uh, as capable as it is, you do need to apply a lot of careful thought, especially mm-hmm. as you get into a lot of routers and a number of areas to make sure it functions as you want. It's not the easiest thing to get right. Well, you touched on a couple of things, right? So so EIGRP is honestly easy. In most cases, I would call it easy. Um, you can kind of just configure it and walk away in most cases, well, dude, uh, especially the these days. Router EIGRP1. <laughs> You know, your network yep. statement and just walk away. <laughs> walk away. Auto summary is enabled. Everything. You're done. Out the door, right? Like that's, and here, here's, I think I put it in the notes, man. So I was in the Marine Corps and I had a junior Marine configure uh, EIGRP and he configured it with auto summary enabled and all these network statements. I mean, he probably had a hundred network statements in the EIGRP configuration. And so I went up to him. And I know EIGRP and I know how to how it works. I'm asked him, like, so why'd you do this? Like, what what was your reasoning for this? He's like, oh, this is just what they taught me to do, uh, you know, in school. Like, I, this is what I was told to just add all the network statements in there and the entire network and I'm good to go. Um, but that, that example shows that that you can misconfigure EIGRP because that's misconfiguring EIGRP, um, but it's still going to work, right? It's still going to function. Uh, and there are some issues, right? There are some nuances and, and we'll get into like stuck and active, um, which can still be an issue, which can still be an issue. Um, but there's a lot of flexibility that you get with EIGRP. OSPF is great. And I would say that, you know, as you scale up with OSPF, you really have to design it effectively, right? You can't just store everything in area zero. Initially, you can, right? Initially, small scale, totally, you can throw it all in area zero, good to go. You don't have to do any type of uh, summarization or segmentation of the LSAs. Um, But as you ramp up devices in that area zero and all those routes and all those LSAs, you're going to have to design it effectively. EIGRP is a little different, right? You don't have to design it per se out the gate, right? And there are some mechanisms that you can leverage to design it. But like you can can summarize on the spot with EIGRP. You can't do that with OSPF, right? This is the difference between a distance vector and a link state protocol. Link state, everything in that area needs to know what every other router knows, that they all make the same calculation and the forwarding is consistent. Distance vector, you can summarize wherever you like. It's such such a great um, requirement. Like it's it's a solution to requirements, right? If you're designing a solution for a customer or for your own environment and you have a need to summarize, I mean, EIGRP is such an, an easy way. Hey, I can summarize in any interface I want. Like it's an interface-based summarization. Now, there's some there's some caveats to that, right? You have to actually have an IP addressing scheme, a subnetting scheme that can be summarized, right? You can't, in most cases, you, you could summarize a default route, yes, but you <laughs> you know, like that's not going to help you here is what I'm trying to say. Right. But like if you don't have like your, your network uh, IP address scheme um, created as like a plan, then your summarization is not going to solve anything, right? So it, that that's the other caveat or requirement to doing summarization. Well, so I think one of the principles or one of the ideas we're relating here, Zig, is EIGRP has got some flexibility and some forgiveness kind of built into it, inherent in its nature, how it converges, how it computes, shortest path between uh, endpoints, whereas OSPF, which 
again, just about everybody's using that is, is more, I want to say rigid, but, but kinda, you know, it's, it, you really need to understand the roles of routers and areas and, and therefore set them up appropriately. Nonetheless, Zig, EIGRP is, and why we're having this conversation in defense of EIGRP, would you say it's being displaced by OSPF and maybe ISIS? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, there's, I still have customers that use EIGRP every day, right? Like it's, I have customers, that's all they know. They don't even know OSPF. And I know that that's weird to say, but that that's the truth. I have customers that know EIGRP and BGP and that's it. And I have the flip side. I have customers who know OSPF and they don't know EIGRP. But again, I think it comes down to, you know, what you're experiencing when you get into your career field and kind of that first couple networks where, you know, you see that IGP, that, that, you know, your first IGP. I mean, can you go back in the day and I'm going to throw this out there and, and remember your first RIP environment, right? What were your thoughts about RIP and RIP version two, right? Version one and version two. Shoot. I'm sure most people that listen don't even know what RIP is anymore. Right. Or I'm dating us. Right. But that's the point I'm trying to make. Like my first like, thought was why does this converge so slowly? <laughs> Uh, it takes forever, forever in a day, right? Like, or and then a hop count, you get, you know, 16 hops later and, and you're, you're pretty much black holing traffic, right? Like there's, <laughs> no, this isn't a rip show, but I was just trying to say that, well, rest in, rest in peace, rip, right? But <laughs> sorry, I had to do it. <laughs> I had to do it. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is that I, I really think it's experience-based, right? You go into an environment, um, someone else already had it there. Now, from a choice perspective, you're designing a greenfield environment. I always go back to the requirements. What are you trying to achieve? What are you trying to, you know, deal with? And what's your topology? Um, there's some topologies that work well with EIGRP that don't work well with OSPF and vice versa. Think of um, hub spoke topologies. Like a hub spoke topology is going to work better at scale with EIGRP than it will with OSPF. Now, I'm not saying that you can't, I gotta, there's gonna be people that say, well, no, I have OSPF working today. You mm -hmm. know, I'm running DMVPN or, or whatever, you know, a full mesh of, or not a full mesh, uh, a hub spoke mesh of GRA tunnels. Yes, you can get OSPF to work that way, but you gotta think of the protocol under the hood. Everything's in the same area, right? Like, and if you have a thousand routers, all those routers are now in the same area. Every time an LSA change happens, every one of those routers is getting that update. Just think of the flooding mechanisms with OSPF. I, I actually gave up trying to get a DMVPN with full mesh working with OSPF and, and went to EIGRP for, for partly for this reason. Yeah. yeah, so I think that's a good use case, right? And actually, that's that's a good conversation that we have. So wait a minute. We need to dig into more use cases here, but you, you just said something huge. Even in Greenfield today, in mm -hmm. 2021, yep. UZigZiga, CCDE, and Cisco Human will sometimes specify EIGRP. It's still a viable option in your mind, depending on use case. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of flexibility with EIGRP. You don't get it with OSPF, right? Like, mm. think of like just building out an environment to mitigate failure domains. And I'm going into like design techniques and design principles, right? Failure, failure domains and, and kind of limiting your failure range or your failure reach is critical. Think of the days when we span layer two. Right, we span layer two across all the boards. Well, think of that that issue, but at a layer three perspective, we have this OSPF area zero, and how big is that OSPF area zero? Right, that's a very very large failure domain. And then let's say add, let's add another area to that. Right, let's add a not so stubby uh, total not so stubby area where we're going to redistribute routes. Well, all, all those redistributed routes now are going to have to get propagated to all those routers in area zero. Um, 
So again, I, I would I would harp right that if you can design OSPF and you know the area types, you know the areas, the LSAs, and how to filter LSAs, right? Because to your point, that DMVPN solution, you can get OSPF to work on DMVPN. You just got to use some techniques like LSA type three filters, um, and, and you got to. There's techniques to do it, right? That that's what I'm coming down to, but you have to design it appropriately. There's more design upfront work to get OSPF to work everywhere. EHRP, man, I like you can just throw it in there and it's going to work in most cases. Now, when you have those very, very large EHRP topologies where your timers are going to go out of, uh, are going to, um, your timers are going to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They're going to time out before mm-hmm. a, like a, a response to a query comes back. That's, where you're going to start to see issues, right? That's where you're going to start to say, hey, that that's stuck in active situation. And that's all about designing effectively that query process, understanding how EIGRP works with query. Why is it querying, right? But here's a good caveat or benefit of EIGRP. Natively, EIGRP has, um, it selects a route, right? It's going to have a route. It's going to select it. I'm not going to specifically use the terms that EIGRP uses by heart. It has a route. It's in the routing table. It's going to automatically set, uh, set up a backup route. Your successor and feasible successor. I'll, exactly. I'll use the words. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the words, right? Uh, successor and feasible successor. But it's going to automatically choose that route. OSPF doesn't do that natively, right? That doesn't happen. So the fast convergence that you get with EIGRP is because if there's redundant paths or there's multiple options, it's going to install those into the table. It doesn't actually do the query part of the process. If it has, and you're saying if it has a feasible successor in the table, when the successor route is withdrawn exactly. for some reason, the feasible successor can take over immediately. Immediately. And so you have a very fast convergence yep. when that happens. Exactly. You're yeah. right. And I didn't, I should have probably gone into detail on that. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's an immediate failover, right? That successor goes offline. And then the next, it says, Hey, do I have a feasible successor? Oh, you do. Okay. Well, I'm going to pop that into my routing table and that's it. Like that's the process. Um, now, if it doesn't have a feasible successor, then it does the query lookup. It sends out a query to all the routers saying, Hey, in my EIGRP domain here, do you guys have a path to that network? Right. And so it's going to reach out to all the routers, all the neighbors. Do you know, you know? do you yep. know, do you know, do you know? And that's yeah. a recursive, right? That's a recursive process. It's going to go through the next, the next neighbor you ask is going to now ask his neighbors or her neighbors. Right. And so on and so forth until a response comes back. Um, but that's where you get that query process and that query timeout. And so things like you're heading towards the stuck inactive problem. You got it. You got yeah. it. So things like uh, using stub routers, right? EIGRP stub routers to mitigate this, the query domain. Uh, the summarization we mentioned there uh, a few minutes ago, that's going to also help mitigate that query domain. I want to talk about stub routers in some detail, but dude, we're like winding all over the place trying to have this conversation. So, so okay. I, I want to go back to the, the Greenfield um, discussion yeah. and then build on that. So you've made a very good case that even in Greenfield, where you're doing a brand new network layer three uh eigrp as a as a routing uh igp and underlay routing protocol there are definitely topological use cases that might drive that as, as a decision uh you know presuming you're building out a, a cisco network which of course we know many people are they're building a, a cisco network that's what's out there all right you cited one topology specifically where you like eigrp hub and spoke we know what a hub mm-hmm. and spoke looks like okay 
Other things uh, that you've mentioned here, just the flexibility where we can do summarization and stuff, that might matter a lot depending on our IP addressing scheme, depending on where uh, we want to. I think you're going to be a border router or a boundary router of some kind, and it can be somewhat arbitrary where that is. You've still got the ability to do summarization, assuming your addressing scheme is going to allow for that because – you know, of course, of course, Zig, we all have outstanding, well-thought-out yes. addressing schemes that are going to just do great with summarization. <laughs> yes, we do. We do, right? We're not using single IP addresses in single places. We don't do that. So so are there any other major, like, use cases where you'd be like, given the choice, I'd pick EIGRP in this scenario? Yeah, so I would pick it probably where I needed fa- a very fast convergence, but not like sub-second or nanosecond convergence. Um, you know, uh, they're native. Those We talked about the successor, and I, I kind of jumped around, and I apologize for that. My mind is that way. That's how my mind works. But the successor and the feasible successor, that that built-in capability of EIGRP, it's, it's already there, and you don't have to do anything about it. You don't have to configure another feature or another protocol or calculate like um, fast reroute or leap, loop free avoidance. Uh, there's a whole bunch of technologies that, that you could do that you don't need to do with, with EIGRP. So you limit the complexity level, right? You're just running one protocol. It has that, that innative high availability, if you want to leverage the term, right? High availability um, re- built in redundancy. Um, and so like, if there's not a requirement where I have to run OSPF and there's benefits to run OSPF, there's benefits. Like do, if I don't need traffic engineering tunnels, if I don't need any type of TE, right. Then I don't need to run. I could run EIGRP. So that is a limitation with EIGRP is that you can't run natively traffic engineering tunnels within like MPLS, like MPLS TE um, with EIGRP. Um, But you can with OSPF and ISIS, so there's some benefits there running OSPF and ISIS. So if I'm in a, like a campus architecture or even a data center space, and the requirement is, hey, I have to run TE tunnels, and oh yeah, we're running MPLS as well. Well then, you know, I'm going to rule out EIGRP. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I'm in a campus environment, and let's say we have a layer three access design, meaning that we're running layer three services on our access switches, and our access switches are where all the devices are plugged into. And we have redundant links to the distros and redundant links to the cores. Um, I'd probably run EIGRP. I have redundant links, right? I have equal cost multipathing going on. It's fast convergence, right? It's it's simple to summarize. But then, you know, if I had to run OSPF there, it's all about your area design, right? So that that's you have to add that step in. Whereas EIGRP, I can say, hey, our summarization, our our, our subnetting scheme is here. Here's EIGRP, put it on, and now you're done. Hmm. Now, one other qualifier worth making, Sig. We said, or I, I said just a little bit ago, we're making the assumption this is a Cisco network. That's mm-hmm. the full-blown EIGRP implementation. That's where you get all the features and uh, the nerd knobs, if you will. Not that we like nerd knobs unless we have a, a use case. But knobs, that said... Uh, Cisco with RFC 7868, it was an informational RFC. Hey, world, here's EIGRP and the basics of the dual uh, routing algorithm. And it, you didn't get everything in that spec. I think stub routing was one of the things you don't get in that spec and so forth. My point, though, you do have um, EIGRP not merely Cisco proprietary. It has been, to some degree, uh, opened up and made available to the industry. Does that impact anything in your mind? Do you see much industry uptake where anyone actually cares that that's a thing that's happened? 
I have not in a production environment. I have not seen it. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So, you know, my purview is, you know, relatively small government, federal space currently, but um, I have not seen it used by other vendors yet. That doesn't mean they don't. That doesn't mean that they can't. I, I was extremely happy personally that EIGRP had that we, you know, there's an RFC for it. I'm a little bummed that they didn't include the stub feature set, right? Because that's, that's, if you start to hit those scaling limitations with the query domain, right? Like, and, and you're going to get stuck in active, like that stuck in active situation, which is, to be honest, the biggest issue with EIGRP is that stuck in active. Absolutely. Right? Yep. Without stub, the, the, so just to be clear, stub, EIGRP stub routing is um, very similar to like a stub area type in, in OSPF, right? So we can limit um, what routes we're sending out. So that's the first thing. We're going to receive routes from our neighbors. So if, we're, if I'm configured as a stub EIGRP router, and, and Ethan is not, right? Ethan is a normal EIGRP router. I'm going to receive all his I'm routes. Normal. Yes. yes, I knew I could be normal. <laughs> so you're a normal yes. person. I'm not, right? I'm stuck. <laughs> um, I, have to, I have to have examples. That's how I do things, right? So he's, I'm going to receive Ethan's routes. So all the routes that Ethan has, I'm going to receive them, assuming that they're not filtered. They're not summarized. Yeah, think of me as like more on the core side of things, and you maybe you're out at the edge. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. I'm more of yeah. an edge. I'm more of like a an access switch or at a remote site, and I'm that edge switch or edge router at that remote site. Um, I'm receiving all of the hub information from Ethan. I'm getting all those routes that I care about, that I need. And he might be summarizing. He might not, right? But I will not advertise those routes out from me. Like if I have other additional neighbors, I won't advertise those routes because I'm the end, right? That's the idea is I'm yeah, the yeah. end you're, you're, of the topology. You're a stub. There's no way to get anywhere else by me. So, exactly. you know, if, if, if I have a route and I don't have a feasible successor, and therefore, I need to. I go into that query state. Hey, a route was just just withdrawn. Hey, Zig, do you have that route? If you're a stub, I'm never going to ask you that question. Nope, exactly. Because because you've told me based on a flag in your routing updates, I'm a stub router. Don't ask me these things. I don't know. And how that helps us with scaling, Zig. So so here's a personal example. I had um, a network with about nine core facing routers and about two thousand edge routers, all running EIGRP. We had that stuck in active problem where a route would be withdrawn from the edge and a routing network that big, big WAN, it's going to happen all the time. And what would happen is one of the core routers would send out a query. The query would go out up to the edge and that edge router would then ask another core router and then back and forth and back and forth, just ping pong all over the place. And the network would be like, I stuck, mm -hmm. stuck in yep. active, restart the EIGRP process, which would create a disturbance in the force. <laughs> and, uh, the dark side is strong. <laughs> that was, was the dark side was very strong and really pissed off my boss. Uh, and so our solution ultimately was okay. All these edges, these two thousand edge routers, need to become stubs so that we don't have this stuck and active problem. Although that particular problem goes back some years, Zig, and I, if I remember right, there are now stuck and active timers mm -hmm. that will prevent us from having that entire topological reset within the EIGRP domain. Um, so you, you still get the scaling benefit, but you also don't have the stuck and active problem, at least not quite like it used to be, right? Yeah, you definitely don't have it like you used to. Um, the, you know, the hardware has gotten better, right? There's more memory, more CPU, more bandwidth. And then the protocols have advanced or, or evolved is probably a better word, evolved. 
Uh, what I can say is that for those that are, are lab for, um, lab people like like us, I would say we like to go in the lab, Ethan. Maybe we don't anymore, but I like to. I'll, I'll talk for you for a minute. Sure, <laughs> I think we like to go to the lab and, and play around with routers and switches. And so, for those that that you know, maybe they haven't seen a stuck and active situation. You can totally make this up in the lab with a couple devices. So if you have a physical lab, you have, you have three devices, um, three routers, or three switches that can run EIGRP. You can totally create this. If you don't have a physical lab and you have a virtual lab, this is a lot easier in the virtual lab anyway. If you're using CML2 or um, what what about Eve NG or you know, GNS3, whatever you know, emulation or simulation software that's out there, um, you can easily create this and see it in real time, right? And see what happens. Look at the timers. It's going to be really clear how this works and what happens, and then what you have to do to mitigate it. Um, and honestly, like Ethan said, you have to clear the process. That's really the only way. And then, so you pretty much have to clear your process on that route, that router, that EIGRP process. And that's a hard clear, right? That's, that's going to take a little bit for that to come back up. And what's happening here, I actually, I don't think we've said what's actually going on because the query process is not bounded. It's just going to ping pong around the topology and every router that sends out a query is waiting for a response. So you end up with the EIGRP just sitting there like, I haven't heard back. I haven't heard mm -hmm. back. I haven't heard back. And the more routers that are in the topology, you're compounding the problem as the query scope is the entire, if the query scope is the entire network and you've got hundreds or thousands of routers, you're, again, this is a scaling challenge. I was going to say a problem for EIGRP, but it's it's more of a, it, it's a dude, it's a design thing. I was the challenge is the right it's, word either. It's not a problem. Exactly. It's just, you have to design with that issue in mind. We pause the podcast discussion today so that I can train you. Yeah, no, I'm I'm actually not going to train you right now. What I am going to do is talk about heavy networking sponsor CBT Nuggets, and they will train you. I care a lot about IT training because it's been a big part of my IT career since I began. All the way back in 1995, I started my IT infrastructure journey learning Novell stuff. And over the years, training has never stopped for me. Sometimes I'm going for a cert, and sometimes I just need to get a better handle on something new. But I'm always learning something to deliver the best networks I can. As you research your own training needs, consider CBT Nuggets. CBT Nuggets specializes in training for networking, cloud, and security. They cover other material too, but they have an especially huge library of training material for Cisco, AWS, Juniper, Linux, Microsoft, and VMware. Thousands of videos, thousands of hours of content, and that's not meant to scare you. It's okay. You don't have to watch them all at once. Just know that what you need is there when you need it. So, for example, let's say you're getting into network automation now. CBT Nuggets offers Cisco DevNet Associate and DevNet Professional Training. I've been reviewing the DevNet Blueprint material from Cisco, and I can tell you, you're going to want training to get through these programs and make the most of them because... DevNet material, it isn't like learning a new routing protocol. It's learning how to manage infrastructure as code. And unless you used to be a dev, you don't know what you're doing. Or maybe, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only one that needs to get stuck into the CBT Nuggets training for DevNet stuff. Anyway, there is so much more there than DevNet training. I've spent some time with the CBT Nuggets interface, and it's easy to navigate. On the videos I sampled, the audio and video quality have been excellent, and the instructors were easy to understand, and they were personal and engaging. They were not formal and boring. And there might have even been a cowboy hat involved. Actually, yeah, there was definitely a cowboy hat. Besides the training itself, there there is a great support system to help you get a handle on the material. They got virtual labs that are there. They got accountability coaching there. And I, I need to shut up now and get to the part that you care about the most, the special offer, free stuff you get from CBT Nuggets because you listened to this entire spot, you awesome human. 
First, visit cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. There, you will find that CBT Nuggets is running a free learner offer. They've made portions of their most popular courses free. All you got to do, sign up with your Google account, start training it. That's it. This is a great way for you to give CBT Nuggets a try. Now, as a bonus, everyone who signs up as a free learner is going to automatically be entered into a drawing to win a six-month premium subscription to CBT Nuggets. So just, just go do it. cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. That's cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. This, this is a no-brainer. And now back to the podcast that I so rudely interrupted. So, so we're harping on this stuck and active design situation. This is kind of like problem, right? If we want to call it a problem. And if we go back 15 years or 20 years, this was a problem all the time. And it's because EIGRP wasn't designed properly to mitigate it. Like people were just throwing EIGRP. It's simple, right? It's that simple solution. Throw EIGRP and walk away. But as these networks got bigger and bigger and bigger, they started having these stuck in active situations because they never actually designed EIGRP. So, you know, in the short term, EIGRP is an easy solution to throw in a small environment. You're not going to have... Um, unless something's totally wrong, you're not going to have a stuck and active uh, problem or situation come up in a small topology. Uh, but as you scale up, you have to make sure you keep that in mind, right? You got to design for that situation. You got to be mental, uh, mentally, what's that? your mindset has to be clear that, hey, this is, a, this is a remote site. There's no additional routers. This is one device. Let's make it a stub router. Let's limit that query domain. Yes, now, very much. Now, I'll add that there's functionalities that like, let's say you do have that remote location and you do create that, that edge device and make that edge device EIGRP stub. There's ways that you can do like leak routes. You can leak routes. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know if you're going to, yeah. So I've had to use these in real situations. You're talking about the scenario where you might actually want um, a couple of edge routers to be like a backdoor to, mm -hmm. to get through where that, where topologically that's okay. And in that you case, you still want it to be stubs, but you might want to leak a few routes so that, in a fail failure scenario, you could fail over to that link. You got it. You got it. One hundred percent. I'll use the real world example. My home lab. You know, so if I went down in my basement, you can't see it in my camera here because it's in my basement. But um, I run EIGRP at home because why not? You know, it's my home lab. Um, but some of the devices don't actually support a normal or full EIGRP instance process. Um, they're limited based on licenses to only be able to do stub routing. So I'm actually doing leak route. I'm leaking routes between my one switch to another switch because it's only supporting stub routing. Now I could fix that, right? I could add a license and do full normal routing. I don't have a need to. I'm just doing a quick leak. I'm actually leaking the default route, to be clear. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm leaking that default route down to the follow-on switch. And then that switch knows how to get out now, right? Dude, that is the simplest. That's beautiful because it's so simple. It's elegant. Yeah. That's, and that's what I'd recommend, right? Now, the other caveat to that, though, is that that other router, you're probably you probably have routes on that other router, right? Somehow you have to show everyone else those routes. Right. Yeah. So what I usually do is on that stub router, I have to either um redistribute those routes because I have to source them from that stub router. They have to be my routes. If I'm a stub router and I want to advertise my routes up to the next to, to Ethan again, right? To to the core, to the hub. I, I have to source those routes. Now, if those routes are coming from that further back device, that like, you know, that further back or down device, mm -hmm. he's sourcing those routes and he could share them with me, but because he sourced them, not me, I'm not going to share them because I'm stuck unless I'm leaking them. Which, unless you're leaking them. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And when you, when you 
pop these, like if you're at the CLI and you pop the stub statement in there, you can say, there's a whole list of, um, mm -hmm. I want to leak these kinds of things. This is what I want to announce from me, even as Got a it. stub router. And uh, it's, it's, it's not overly complicated to get this done. No, it's actually pretty simple. So it's not too hard. I mean, it's, you, you know, you configure stub and then you got summary. So you can do all summary routes. It'll, it'll advertise all summary routes. Um, you can do leak, which is just going to be a route map. So if you're familiar with route maps, you could do like prefix list, whatever, real easy. Call out the subnets that you, you know, or the networks you want to advertise, leak, leak out. Um, and I, like I said, I use the default route a lot. Like, honestly, like if I'm going to do something like one way, I, I just send a default route down. I don't like static. I'm not a big fan of doing statics if I don't have to. So I'd rather receive a default route dynamically with some sort of leaking versus doing a static default route on that edge that followed and that, that last device. Right. So we've been talking about, we've got, we keep go diving into specifics because we're nerds and we can't help ourselves. Well, we this, love this. this. Again, we're defending EIGRP here, right? That's the whole point. <laughs> There's another zoom out question I have for us. So going back to that Greenfield scenario, Let's forget about, well, not forget about technology, but let's look at business requirements and apply EIGRP to some business requirements, which I know from a CCDE perspective, you're, you're comfortable doing this. This is the kind of the mindset that you live in, as far as I can tell from listening to your podcast. Um, <laughs> are there other business requirements that you can think of that might drive you towards EIGRP instead of uh, OSPF perhaps? Yeah. So we've said a couple of them kind of roundabout, right? We haven't come out and said, hey, this is a good business requirement. So this is good, right? So I'll start from the bottom here because I think this is one we've already kind of talked about. It's flexibility, right? Like yep. you have the ability to kind of run your topology and you can summarize, like I said, right? You have the ability, that flexibility is key to summarize and you can filter, you can easily filter. Now you can't easily filter an OSPF. So just keep that in mind. Go ahead, Ethan. So so from a business requirement, what you're saying is here are some features that, depending on what the business is looking for, might become applicable. The flexibility, the fact that you can summarize wherever, which we brought up those points before, again, as engineers and nerds. But again, mapping those features back to whatever the business scenario is, is, is a doable thing. Yeah. So like, let's, let's actually do that. Let's use some examples to make it kind of clear, right? We'll bridge that gap. I like to call it, we're bridging the technology and the business side of things. I'm using one hand. I should have used two. So the business and technology, right? That's the whole point of what network design is. we got to bridge that gap. So here, for flexibility, for example, right? Like maybe you're in a situation where your company, your organization, your business needs to add, you know, 100 routers, 100 VPN routers into your topology. And if you have OSPF and you have a flat OSPF area zero, if you go to do that, now you're injecting how many, those 100 routes, routers, and let's say all those routers have four routes on them, um, four networks that they own. I mean, that's 400 you know, new LSAs or new networks that OSPF area zero is going to have now. And, and furthermore, let's say that there's, there's some constant churn on those devices. They're going up, they're going down, right? Every time one of those networks goes offline for whatever reason, it's sending LSA updates, different LSA types, but we're not going to get into the details on that. But like, just clear, like there's a lot of churn. There's a lot of reconvergence churn. A lot there's of a lot of churn that every router in that OSPF domain is doing. Yeah. Every router. Which, exactly. Which right? to be fair, modern uh, control plane CPUs, maybe not such a big deal, but uh, you know, the point still stands. There is churn and calculations going on. Yeah, so I wouldn't say it's like a CPU. I wouldn't say it's a resource issue anymore. Like we have enough memory and CPU cycles on these devices 
where it's not necessarily a resource issue or a bandwidth issue either, right? It's going to be more about how fast are you reconverging now, right? Like how fast is that network going to be back online? Um, or, or maybe it's not, right? And then again, this we're comparing it to OSPF specifically, but if you look at two different routers in that OSPF area zero domain and they're different locations within that, that one single area, they could have very different database tables because they haven't received the updates, right? They, or they're trying to receive the updates and they haven't gotten them, they haven't processed them. And that's, that's one of those situations where if your database tables, specifically for OSPF, are not in sync, then you're gonna have a totally different routing topology. Like that's, that's what the basis of routing is for OSPF. Um, so, so, but back to flexibility, right? I can get in the weeds, obviously, Ethan. So <laughs> back to flexibility, right? So OSPF in that situation may not be able to be as flexible to help the business scale. So think of the business as, hey, we need to add more remote sites because, you know, hey, COVID, right? Hey, we're, we're every house, every, every home office is now a remote site, right? So let's think of that as a, as, let's say a company has 100 employees and every, remote, every home office is now a remote site. They have their own device, whatever, and, and they have to now connect back in from a topology perspective. If you're running OSPF, that is not conducive to uptime, high availability because of the limitations within an area zero, flat area zero design. EHRP, on the other hand, flexible, right? We can easily throw that in there. It's not going to have any issues. Uh, every router can be part of that process. And if we had to, we could limit the query domain with doing stub routers at everyone's house. Now, on the contrary side, if we're doing OSPF for some reason, we have to do OSPF, um, we could always do different area types. Right. Like that uh -huh. is that is a value thing. We do it in different area types yep. um, and then have a concentrated location where those routes are coming in, but not being propagated further within OSPF of further areas. Right. You, you're saying like have a have an area zero in the middle, kind of a hub and spoke, but an area zero Got in it. the middle, yeah. some different area out there at the edge where the VPN routers are connecting in. So if there's some churn, it's really isolated to the area that's out Got there it. at the edge. The core uh, OSPF doesn't area zero backbone area doesn't see that churn. Yeah, and it goes more into summarization though as well, like on yep. an ASBR. So we didn't get into like router types, and and again, this isn't supposed to be an OSPF show, right? <laughs> uh, but it, it's coming that way, Ethan. So, um, but the point I'm trying to make is that you have to design it, and you have to do some summarization on your ASBRs, because let's just, those those routers on the back end are going to have routes. Now, if you don't summarize, you're going to get summary uh, addresses or summary ranges for every network that's behind that ASBR sent to area zero, mm -hmm. to the area zero. So what is a, an easy solution is saying, hey, here's all those networks that are at those remote sites. Let's summarize them into one network, yep. right? Let's, let's make it easy. Let's make it simple, but we have to design it that way. We summarize it into one network and now it's never getting changed. When the, it, yeah, because if it's, one of the it's, networks in the summary falls out, it, it's fine. The summary statement exactly. remains the same. So you go from having possibly 400 plus LSA updates to every router in OSPF to now having no LSA updates because it's a summarization. The only time you'd have an LSA update is if every single network went offline within that summary, right? So you'd have that update. But that's designing OSPF. Now on the flip side, EIGRP, you just kind of throw it out there, right? You kind of throw it out there. In that same situation, it's going to function, it's going to work. The scalability issues that you get with OSPF is going to hit like when you start getting a thousands, I would say, that thousand number. Um, and it's not a straight calculation. You know, that's not an always situation. So don't say Zig told me that if I had a thousand routers, it's going to be a problem. That's not what I'm trying to say. 
it's situational, right? So that's a, a ballpark. It might be 900. It might be 500 in your situation. It might be 1500. Um, the point is that a hundred routers are going to scale. Like it's going to scale pretty easily um, without any issues. So flexibility. That was a long way, Ethan. I'm sorry, buddy. That was a long, <laughs> long tangent on flexibility and tying it to business. You know, but, you, but this, this is an underlying principle here that I think is really important, Zig, that you've made. Understanding how OSPF functions in a given scenario versus how EIGRP functions in a scenario can define which routing protocol you prescribe to solve that mm -hmm. business problem. And so if you're somewhat ignorant of what's really going on there, it makes it tough for you to make the right choice and making and and you can in fact, especially at scale, make the wrong choice. Oh yes. And then you have a design failure. Right. And then you're going to be called back in to solve it, or I'm going to be called in to solve it. <laughs> Sorry, I had to throw that out there. So, so flexibility, that's that's a big deal. Simplicity, we're getting into some more repeatable, more mm -hmm. predictable designs that we can replicate that could be a little harder to do in OSPF, depending. Well, so simplicity, what I would say there, so simplicity, KISS, right? Keep it simple. And it's keep it simple, stupid, right? Mm -hmm. So KISS. Um, and I'm a big fan of simplicity, right? Keep it simple. Like, don't make it complex if you don't need to make it complex. So don't don't run multi-area OSPF if you don't need to. Yeah. If you, EIGRP, you can throw it and walk away. So think of how long it takes to design something. Like, think of how long it takes to design an OSPF area, area types and whatnot. But then think of how long it takes you to design EIGRP and throwing it out there. In most cases, EIGRP is gonna be quicker, easier, and now you can focus on those other business lines of effort that you need to focus on, that your that your business wants you to focus on. So I look at, at that as a requirement or, or a business, I guess, requirement. Simplicity is, it's not necessarily tied to a business like goal, but now you can focus your time on something else. You're not you're not sitting there focusing on OSPF for a week. You know, you're focusing on EIGRP for a day or maybe four hours. And now you're done with that task, right? You've rolled out EIGRP and now you can focus on that, you know, that business initiative that's going to give your business more money versus, you know, you playing around the OSPF for a week and a half or two weeks or whatever. <laughs> so there's that one. And then unequal cost load balancing is another one, right? So if there's a requirement where we don't have equal cost links, meaning that they're not the same bandwidth and we're, or we're not manually changing it or whatever, is natively both... OSPF and EIGRP can do equal cost multipathing, right? They can do equal cost load balancing. But EIGRP can do unequal cost load balancing. And that's a <gasps> variance configuration, right? What so, you, so what are you saying? No, I thought there could be only one. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that is a good use case where, hey, let's use EIGRP. And the big idea here is you got something with more bandwidth and something with less bandwidth, but you can still push traffic across both of them where you don't yeah. actually have to have there can be only one or they must be equal and I will distribute equally across the equal paths. So that's, that's kind of, and I think a lot of people maybe don't even know about that. In fact, I'd forgotten about unequal cost load balancing and I've used it in the past. Yeah. It's awesome. I mean, it really is pretty cool. So, you know, now you have to configure it and it's ratio based, right? So you have to understand that ratio and the mechanics under the hood. And, and we're not going to get into the weeds here on that, but it's all hash based. And so, you know, if you could do two to one, right? You could do, hey, this link is, is 100 meg, this link's 10 meg. I don't know if anyone has 10 meg links anymore. Maybe 100 meg and a gig is probably a better option, right? So you have a gig and 100 meg. Well, whatever ratio that fits for that, and I would say you have to monitor your bandwidth and, and monitor your links and then adjust accordingly. 
Um, and it's the variance command with an EIGRP. You can change the variance and, and, and tweak it however you want it to tweak it. But that, that's a use case I've seen a number of times in production that works. Less, less these days. Uh, I don't know when you did it, Ethan, but I, I see it less these days because most people have equal links. Goes back a decade, I think, Sig. Um, yeah, it's been a while, right? It, it was a scenario of uh, multiple WAN links is usually what it was that weren't all the exact same, but you didn't, you know, awfully expensive bandwidth just sit there doing nothing if you can push some traffic across them. And that's not, that's my basis, right? Why are you spending money on links and you're only you're using it as an active standby or an active failover, right? Like that's even with spanning tree. That's why I don't like spanning tree. I know there's a purpose for it, but. I am running dual links, so I want to use those links, right? So let me figure out a way to use those links effectively. In my situation, it's more like data center with DCI, data center interconnects, where one link's like 10 gigs and one link's like one gig. Like I want to use both links. Yeah. So let me use both links. Um, and that's a good use case to use those links with the EIGRP. In OSPF, you can't, right? That, that's just not a possibility. Uh, so you're limited to an active link and, and kind of a standby link. And then the last one I would say is, hey, my staff already knows the technology. They've already had experience with EIGRP. Um, so let's keep it with what they know, right? Unless there's another requirement, another constraint or, or outcome a business is looking to achieve that would pick that, you know, would make sense to pick something else and force your staff to learn it. Like, hey, you're going to learn OSPF right now. Yeah, I know. I do go with EIGRP, right? It's, it's not, yeah, just, you know it. You're, you're familiar with it. You're confident in it. Let's go run it. If there's not some compelling technical reason where you really need to go with this other solution, why not go with what you already know is the point exactly. you're making. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. And, and uh, I'm going to caveat that, that or not caveat that, but I'm going to add some additional meat to that, I guess. Caveat's the wrong word. That's the same thing for like the CCD exam, right? So if anyone's going after the CCDE exam, the Cisco Certified Design Expert exam, that certification, like as you go through those scenarios, that's the same thing. If your staff knows the technology at hand, that's a good benefit, right? That's a good outcome. You don't have to teach the staff new stuff. So when you're comparing options like EIGRP versus OSPF, like we're talking about today, if my staff knows EIGRP and they don't know OSPF and there's no other governing requirements to choose OSPF, then I would choose EIGRP. Okay, fair enough. All right, Zig, we're going to go back in the weeds. Let's pretend we weren't, haven't been in the weeds pretty much since minute two. Uh, we, haven't, and we haven't gotten that low. We haven't back. been in zeros and ones yet. We haven't talked about K values yet. <laughs> We're like, going to talk about K values right now. Okay, <laughs> folks. Zig being a CCD and, and doing EIGRP networks uh, fairly regularly, I wanted to pick his brain on some, some stuff relating to EIGRP design and his uh, design recommendations based on what he's seen in production and so on. And I have my own opinions too, but, uh, but Zig, uh, <laughs> let's start with K-values. Now, for those of you who don't have a clue what K-values are in relation to EIGRP, uh, EIGRP has a formula for how it calculates the cost of a path effectively. And there are, is it five K-values? There's five, yeah, there's, there's five, five K-values. Okay. And if you look at the formula, it's this complex looking math thing that looks like you need a PhD to understand. It's actually not that bad if you sit and just uh, <laughs> describe it. But the default way that that formula is calculated, three of the, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, Zig, but three of the five K values are zeroed out. They don't actually impact the bottom line. And you're left with bandwidth and delay. Is that right? Yes, I'm pretty are sure that's accurate. Those are the two K values that, that are, those that are, are the two K values that matter, right? Uh, based on the initial calculations is delay bandwidth and delay. And I, I, I believe they're the first two, I forgot the order. I won't lie. Right. I yeah, always use a question mark. It, it, it kind of doesn't matter because the temptation is for a nerd. 
oh, I can screw with the K values and tweak them. I'm going to tweak them because they're tweakable. It's a nerd knob, right? It's another nerd knob that someone says, hey, I'm going to tweak this nerd knob. But in reality, we actually never see that. I've never worked on any IGFP network where K values are anything other than defaults, meaning bandwidth and delay are what matters and the rest of them don't. I've I've had it twice in 20 years. So 20 plus years, I've seen it twice in production networks and they were valid use cases. They They were valid use cases, but they were... One-offs. They weren't like a common use case, right? So it's not a normal thing. And I actually have seen it a ton of times in production networks where it was stupid. Like I can't, I can't tell you enough. Like remember Kiss? I, we talked about that like yeah. ten minutes ago. Kiss, keep it simple, stupid. Don't modify the K values. Like seriously, just there's no need. Like these days, there's just no need to modify the K values. And and I completely agree with that. Um, the, <laughs> the only place where I was kind of hoping it would work is I think one of the K values is load, where and the theory would be if there's a lot of load on a link, you could maybe dynamically shift routing around. I don't think it actually works that way, you know, ultimately. You'd have so much churn in your network anyway if you actually if it did actually work that way. That's the kind of thing that sounds like a good idea, but well, it's like um, I don't know. I, I was trying to think of an analogy where it's a good idea to do this, but I never do it. I working out, right? It's a good idea to work out every day, but do I really do it? No. Like <laughs> no, but but here, so like that point, I think I think if the under the hood of, I think that the protocol, any protocol could uh, intelligently measure the load and in, in, in real time dynamically change where things are going. That'd be great. But that's where we're getting with like software defined solutions, right? Yes. That's where SD WAN and, you know, software defined campus and, you know, whatever buzzword we want to throw in there, intent based networking, you know, we'll just throw it in there. Zero trust architecture. We'll just throw it all in there right now. Um, so but but the point is that like that's where things are today like with those software defined solutions i don't see these routing protocols being modified to do it to the scale that these software defined solutions are going to be doing it no i agree with you where you see that fancy stuff service providers of course having had that specific use case for a very long time and i've had all kinds of ways to do that they'll manually program the forwarding table not manually like with a human but some software defined controller with a policy that's a policy engine that's been set up accordingly is going to move traffic around to their different, very expensive links based on load, time of day, mm-hmm. these kind of things, not relying on a routing protocol like EAGRP <laughs> to try to figure that out for them on the fly. It's going to be some centralized controller. Yeah. It's going to be all API based there. We got automation in here too. Now look at Ooh, that. Yes. Awesome. Yes. Buzzword. Ding. If you're playing buzzword <laughs> bingo, make sure you check your box. All right. So K values, leave them at default. Don't mess with them. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Link numbering, IPv4, v6, link numbering. How do you, this, the, by, I'm talking about the link in between a pair of EIGRP neighbors. Do you, do, you, do, do you number them? Do you leave them unnumbered? What's your style, Zig? So I've always wanted to number them. That's just a personal opinion. Um, I think we have to go back, right? Everything's done for a reason. We have to go back in time. Why was unnumbering configured? And I, the, the thing I remember when I was first starting out is that IP unnumbered was brought in because we couldn't subnet, right? So it, it, for those that don't remember, if you go back in time, VLSM, um, variable length subnet masks, never existed, right? So think of the day when we talked about RIP, we already talked about RIP. RIP didn't support VLSM and neither did IGRP. IGRP was a routing protocol before EIGRP. So those that don't know that, that's what that is. You're going way back um, in time, buddy, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, but the, the implication here is that you have to understand why something was created mm-hmm. to then know like, what was the purpose? Okay, we don't need to do it anymore. That's really what it comes down to. So 
this was back when you couldn't subnet. You couldn't get those slash 30s or those slash 31s for IPv4. So if you were going to create a link network, it'd be a slash 24. You couldn't subnet any further than that. So you have to, you'd be using an entire slash 24 dedicated to each individual link if you were doing it that way. So to mitigate that, they created IP unnumbered where it would use a loopback address. It actually would lose any, any pre-configured, sorry, not pre-configured. You could specify any interface that already had an IP address on it to use as that unnumbered address. Um, but the recommendation is to use a loopback address so it never goes down. Mm-hmm. So you'd create like loopback zero, give your IP address on it, and then all your physical links would be configured IP unnumbered, and you'd, you'd source or you'd call out that loopback zero. And, and really what that would do is now all of those links would actually form adjacencies with that, that same IP address. Right, like it's just a different MAC address, right? But it's it's forming it uh, because it's point to point, and, and it it'll it'll see it up, and it'll come right up, up, up. Um, and it's a good mechanism to save IP addresses. That's that was the original use case. But today we can we can subnet, and there's a lot of underlying issues, in my opinion, with IP unnumbered. It does it does add some complexity, right? When you're troubleshooting a network. You're not going to know the link, like link IP addresses, right? You're going to have to figure out where things are going and and who formed that adjacency. Um, so I'm very, my opinion, I'm opinionated on this is to use IPv4 addresses on your link addresses, not IP unnumbered. And uh, you know, there's another debate: uh, do you use a slash thirty or slash thirty one? So Ethan, yeah. what do you do? Do you use a slash thirty or do you use a slash thirty one? Slash thirty keeps it simple. It, it just keeps it a little bit simpler. It's a little, yes, it burns more a- addresses for sure, but. You know, if if you're in that scenario where you have to conserve addresses and you want to use a slash 31, fine. But uh, slash 30 is a little simpler for, for me, I guess. Do you have a take on it? Yeah, I, I do slash 30s. Um, I think there's a – I've never done slash 31s to be, you know, fully transparent. Never touched a slash 31. Never designed a solution that used slash 31s, if that's even helpful. But I think there's some implications of where that might be helpful to use a slash 31. I would say large-scale kind of – service provider networks where they could be limited on, on addressing, right? Yeah. I mean, even the RFC 1918, you know, your private addressing space, you could be limited because you have so many different um, customers and subnets being leveraged. So I could see it being used there. And then there's another thought that it could be uh, some increased security, but I don't know how accurate that really is. I mean, it's less, it's less device, less IP addresses being leveraged, less networks, or more networks, but there's segregation, right? It's a broadcast domain. So. Now, if you're listening to Zig and I talk about slash 30, slash 31s, and you're not getting what the issue here is, if you use a slash 30, that's a subnet mask of 255, 255, 255, 252. That is a block of four addresses. Then you're burning the top address and the bottom address. The top one's a broadcast, and the, uh, the top one, yeah, they're, they're both... <laughs> You're burning so up the top both. one's the network address, and the, the bottom one's the broadcast. Bottom one's the broadcast. Just to, to help you there, Ethan. And you only <laughs> shut up. Man. Sorry, buddy. Yeah, dude. <laughs> and you only get to use the two in the middle, so it's a bit wasteful of the address space. And if I forget what the command is, there's some command that would allow you to use a slash thirty one, which means mm-hmm. kind of like pretend there is no network address and broadcast address. We're just going to use you know every single address for the links. Um, but again, the scenarios where you'd really need that, you'd have to be, you'd have to be a really large org. You burn through basically RFC 1918 and you're just struggling to conserve addresses on your links. That's a massive network. Other than that, do you really need to do that? Uh, you know, it seems like overkill to me for most scenarios. Well, so what about IPv6, um, link numbering zig? 
Um, yeah, so so it also is supported. It, there's a feature there to do IPv6 unnumbered, and, and the, the same same debates there. Do you use a slash twenty a slash one twenty six or a slash one twenty seven? You know, there's that as well. I have never seen. I'm being uh, like I can't say that. I have one. I actually have one customer today that's using IP unnumbered for both IPv4 and IPv6, but there is no valid business justification behind that. Like there was no like this was just done just because they wanted to run dual stack and they wanted to they wanted to to conserve their IP addresses for some reason. I don't know. It was not there was no valid reason. Um, and actually they have a lot of issues with it today. That's a VXLAN environment so it's a little bit more advanced. It's not like a normal routing environment. And so they're just having a whole bunch of issues with VXLAN not functioning and IPO number being leveraged everywhere for both protocols, IPv4 and IPv6. I'll tell you, for V6, I don't even think the debate is slash 126 slash 127 are unnumbered. I don't even think that's the debate. I think the debate is slash 64 versus mm. like a slash 126 uh, or 127, something like that. Uh, one, so like the guys over at IPv6 Buzz, IPv6 Buzz being another podcast in the Packet Pushers Network. If you're interested in that, packetpushers.net slash subscribe. And the information about IPv6 Buzz is there. They nerd out on V6 every, every two weeks, I believe. Well, Tom Coffeen, who's one of the co-hosts there, he wrote a book on V6 numbering. It's on the shelf right behind my head here. I believe, I hope I don't have this wrong. Tom, if you listen to this and have it wrong, you can, you know yell at me on Twitter or something, but yell slash 64 <laughs> is they're assigning slash 64s to links. The idea being, if you do the math on how much address space you have at a block of like a slash 48 or, you know, slash 40, whatever it is, you can't exhaust, even if you're wasting an enormous amount of address, um, like you would be using a slash 64 and V6 address space. And it's, it's fine. So Zig, I don't know if you've run into this in, uh, in real life or not. Yeah, I have. Um, so funny that you mentioned that. So, you know, a lot of people want to use uh, Slash 64. I actually have a Cisco Live lab that I do every every so often, um, an IPv6 lab. And if it's a paid-for session. It's not going this year because we're all digital, but it'll go when we go back on site. But um, So it's a paid-for lab, and there's actually – um, I do both. I do a Slash 64, and I show the implications of that, and then I show a Slash 127. Because that's what I use, just to be clear. If I'm going to use it, I don't use a slash 126. I use a slash 127. And there's some benefits, right? You are conserving those addresses. So if you're not given a very big, very large range from your providers, and think of if someone's governing your IPv6 range, right? You don't own everything. Someone else owns it, and they're giving you a chunk. I could I could see that being a good use case to you know, summarize it effectively. Um, but outside of something like that, if you own your own range, I mean, you're going to have a whole bunch of address addresses. So I think it's more of a, what do you want to do? What do you prefer, right? Do you want to see slash 64s everywhere? Or do you want to see a slash, you know, slash 127s everywhere? Oh, and, and I know the the instinct uh, of all of us that are engineers are just conserve, 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 because we grew up in the IPv4 era. It's hard to shift to that plenty mindset i have plenty of addresses more than i could you know, ever use i at the moment based on just having done the math i feel okay with slash 64s but it still freaks me out it's just you know it's what a I mean? lot it though still freaks me out right? i know it's a lot. i know and you're doing it on your link addresses right I know. Your link addresses. I know. it like, feels it's crazy it feels so wrong does... but it's like uh, but i but i know it's going to be okay but i still struggle it's, with that it's almost like you have, to, you have to change your mindset right you have to like Big embrace time. it and be like okay it's I, i'm okay i'm okay and you do slash 64 and you walk away um, 
So there is a, a design use case, uh, corner case for this, just for IP unnumbered specifically, just to let you know. So overlapping subnets. So think of you have overlapping subnets and you don't want to use some sort of natting to mitigate that. Like think of a, a driver where you can't change the subnets and they're overlapping. Well, you could do IP unnumbered to kind of get around that. Um, that is a good use case solution. It's like kind of out there. Right? It's kind of out of the box. Yeah. It's not what you would normally think. All right, more design stuff I want to ask you about uh, relating to convergence times and EIGRP, Zig. Yeah. So let's talk about EIGRP convergence in its default state. What, what is that? How much time does that typically take? Maybe we want to bring up successors and feasible successors again. Talk us through it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think most people are never going to actually see how long it takes. It's going to be so instantaneous to, to us, right? The, the timing for it, if you have a feasible successor. So remember, if you have a successor, you have a route, right? You have a route that EIGRP is chosen as your main route to go to. And let's, it, there's a there's a qualified feasible successor to that route, which means there's a backup route, right? And that is already calculated and it's already in the EIGRP topology table. So think of the topology table as the EIGRP database. It's the brain of EIGRP. It's, it's telling EIGRP, hey, I have a backup route for this. I don't have a backup route for that. So if there's a backup route, that feasible successor, it is so fast. It is like, I mean, I, I put on here a, a tenth of a second and that's for a thousand routes. That's not for one route. That's up to a thousand routes on that device. So in a tenth of a second, it's going to reconverge um, and you're going to be able to pass, you're going to pass traffic. By reconverge, you, you, we mean specifically, it's going to move from rib to fib. It's going to move from the routing information in, in a backup state and be installed in the forwarding table of that router. And you're actively making packet forwarding decisions based on that newly installed route that came from that feasible successor. You got it. You got it. Yep. Okay. And it's, it's, I mean, honestly, the traffic is going to seem instantaneous, right? If you were pinging a network from where you are to where it's going, I mean, it's, it, you're going to maybe see a blip, like one ping drop, right? If that, and this is so fast that you're not going to really see it. Now, now that's one case, right? That's assuming you have a feasible successor, which again, they're, they're calculated by default. Now in the case where you don't have a feasible successor, this is going to be a little longer. It's going to take about half a second, right? So just keep that in mind that, I mean, you're going to see that, right? That's that's going to be noticeable for you, your users. It's, they're going to notice that there's there's a delay, right? There's a short delay, half a second. And that's going to compound as you go from router to router. But again, that that's thresholds a thousand routes, right? That's the thousand routes to take about half a second to reconverge. Uh, and it'll be larger if you have larger routes, like if you have 10,000, 20,000 routes, right? Now, this gets back into the whole query thing that we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. We were explaining how sub, sub networking help or sub routers help us to scale our EAGRP networks. We are talking about in this case, um, if I don't have a feasible successor, I have to go through that query process. Hey, I just lost this route. I don't have a feasible successor. Do you know how to get there? Other EIGRP neighbor? And it asks and it asks and it asks um, everybody else that's around um, him. Then a thousand routes, half a second for that query process to complete on average, kind of rule of thumb. Yeah, that's an average, right? These aren't hard set numbers. That's an average and it's a process, right? So again, it's flexible based on how big and how, how how the scale of the environment you have. That makes sense. Now, I think you want to get into, you know, when do we tweak these timers, right? So this is the default settings, right? But like, when do we tweak these timers? So so let me throw at you what I think of as a reason why we maybe would want to tweak timers. Um, and that one specific scenario, uh, from, at least from a technical perspective, are, are micro loops where there is a sub-second amount of time 
where you're not forwarding to the feasible successor or you're not forwarding to whoever, wherever the route converges because maybe you didn't have a feasible successor and that's a micro loop. You're forwarding and maybe you're sending it out the wrong interface because we haven't converged yet or you or it gets black holed. It can't go anywhere. This sort of a scenario. And in certain environments, maybe that's not acceptable. I used to work in a payment card environment and I had a few customers that were going to call if they dropped even a single transaction because they were monitoring that closely. And so an unstable uh, routing domain, even if it was sub-second, could potentially be noticed by that customer and we wanted to avoid those things. So maybe um, we would tweak timers to force EIGRP to converge even faster. Although I guess this gets into things like neighbor adjacencies and, and stuff like that, what we're really talking about, you know, those, those uh, timers going back and forth as EIGRP neighbors come up and then stay in touch with each other. How does EIGRP know that he's lost a neighbor mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that to kind of hasten that process? Yeah, these are specific. Yeah, it's real specific in my mind. I think you got to break it down, right? So fast convergence can be a number of things. So like the the feasible successor option there, that's not necessarily reconverging or re-neighboring or detecting a failure, or a neighbor failure, right? Or a link failure or whatever like that. This is specific to, hey, we we lost this network. We We lost this network in our table and we have a feasible path. We have a backup path. Or if we don't, and how fast can we install that backup path or find a new one um, so that we can pass traffic to that network? So there's that option, right? But then there's also like, how do we detect that our neighbor is down? Um, and, and honestly, if it's a point-to-point link, that's going to be pretty quick, right? It's it's a point-to-point link. EIGRP is going to hit that line that line notification, that physical interface notification. It's going to be, hey, the interface went down. Okay, our neighbor's down. Now, there's a case for that where it's not going to be the, it's not going to actually, that line, that, that physical connection isn't going to go down, but the neighbor's down. There is a lot of gray failure situations there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I would run BFD, something like BFD, ah. right? That that's a use case for, and I forget what BFD stands for off the top of my head. So I'm not going to, yeah, there you go. I knew you were going to back me up there. Yes. <laughs> um, so, so I use, I would use BFD there because let's, let's do a topology. You have two routers and they're both connected to a switch, right? And that switch doesn't route and, and they're forming an EIGRP adjacency between the two routers. And that switch is just a layer two switch. Well, if a link between the switch and one of those routers goes down, it's going to take some time for that to propagate back to that other router. There's hello timers and there's neighborship timers. There's a whole bunch of timers. Okay. The point you're making here, the switch in the middle means I've got two ethernet links as opposed to the routers being directly connected exactly. to the other ethernet interfaces. So if one goes down, the other router that's still up says, I've still got an ethernet link. Everything's great, right? Exactly. Hello, 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 hello. And, and eventually it fails, yeah. <laughs> and you're waving, right? And you're waving forever and you're waiting for that response and you never <laughs> and, get it, and, right? And BFD to the rescue. <laughs> and BFD to the rescue. BFD is that, you know, that rescuer that's going to come in and say, hey, you're, we, we can't connect to the peer. It's down. So let's bring that, that adjacency down, right? And not send hellos and, and wait. So BFD is not part of EIGRP. It is a separate process that sits. Um, I like to think of it as sitting kind of under the routing protocol because it's a... Uh, it, the BFD process runs between the two devices and and runs very quickly. There's a lot of traffic, mm-hmm. not a lot of traffic volume wise, but there's a you know a 
constant back and forth and back and forth between BFDs. That's how I like to think of it. If I'm getting details wrong, just tell me to shut up, Sig. But, <laughs> no, you're but fine. when a failure is detected, like in this example we've been giving, two routers connected together with a switch in the middle, and one of those links fails, BFD will very quickly detect, uh, I can't talk to my BFD neighbor anymore. I'm going to tell EIGRP about this. Hey, EIGRP, there's a failure to this other router. You can go ahead and kill that neighbor because he ain't there anymore. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's the best way to say it right now. Um, BFD is another protocol. It ties into a whole bunch of protocols, not just EIGRP, but EIGRP is the use case we're leveraging it for. But if you have a fast, uh, a first hop redundancy protocol like HSRP or VRRP, whatever you're using, it can work there too. It can help you um, get you that quick, that quick fail back or fail down situation, right? And that's what I would use BFD again um, to help you there. Now the question comes to what would I tweak, right? Because this is the other option, right? So there was reconvergence of a specific route, right? With backup routes or not backup routes. There was, um, my neighbors aren't up, but I don't know, right? So BFD, I think those are the two that I've already talked about. Then the third one is, you know, do we just tweak the timers, right? Why do we, we ever need to tweak the timers? And me personally, I would, I really have no business justification on tweaking EIGRP timers, my opinion would be if I'm going to need to tweak EIGRP timers, I'm probably going to leverage some other protocols to help me with like, like I mean, sub-second or nanosecond failover, or even like in a service provider world where we're running MPLS with traffic engineering tunnels, in which case I wouldn't be running EIGRP. I'd be running OSPF for ISIS because I'd be doing something a little different. My purpose would be different. I don't like tweaking timers either. You have to get the timers right on both sides. It's just another opportunity to screw up. Exactly. And, and if you tweak those timers, you're, it's not just screwing up. If you tweak them too far, you could actually break that device. You don't even realize the implications of the CPU and the memory um, and the churn on that physical device. You are asking more of the device to, if you tune those timers too aggressively. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that, yep. that in and of itself can cause problems. And I've actually seen that in production. I've seen devices go offline because of that. You have to go and, you know, unplug it, plug it back in and rebuild mm -hmm. it up. We mentioned ECMP earlier on the podcast, Zig. Um, any tips and tricks relating to equal cost multipath routing with EIGRP? Yeah. I mean, you leverage it like it's awesome, but I'm um, sorry, I had to, um, um, you know, there's some, there's some, uh, lim not maybe not limitations, but scaling. Right. So I think, uh, there's a scale today of four at a time. Um, but it's dependent on hardware, right? So I think there are some new devices today that can support up to eight. That's the eight concurrent links where you're in neighborships, not just links, but neighborships. So it doesn't have to be links. It could be just neighbors. You could be running eight neighborships to the same device over the same link, I guess. I don't know why you would do that per se, but you could do that. For the links themselves, if you had eight links, um, you could do that on certain hardware, right? Now you have to set that in the configuration from four to eight. I don't know what the benefit, like I don't know what a business outcome would be for that though. I've always been the type of person where if I'm going to have redundancy, I'm going to have two, right? Two of everything. Um, unless we can't do it for some reason, there's a requirement where we don't need it or we can't do it, but two for everything. And in certain circumstances, I'm going to do four, but four more than four. I have, it has this uh, diminishing returns on the value add, right? Mm -hmm. So if I have five links, what am I getting? If I have eight links, what am I getting right now? I have a port channel or I have redundant routing links or at some point there's a threshold where you're hitting and it's like, it's not really valuable, right? There's more complexity and there's not a lot of benefit. 
So you said port channel, which does bring up a design uh, opinion I'd love to get from you. When we're talking mm -hmm. about ECMP and EIGRP, we're talking about parallel layer three links that, that we can forward across. All right. Well, a different way to do this that looks kind of similar on paper, I have a port channel that I've built at layer two. Let's say it's a layer two ether channel. This could be a layer three ether channel. Either way, mm -hmm. there's a bunch of different ways you could configure this. Would you do port channels and do your, it's not really ECMP at that point. It's you're asking the ether channel to do the load balancing. EIGRP thinks it has a single link that it's forwarding across. It just happens to be a port channel bundle. Do you, do you have a preference there? So I would prefer to route when I have no other requirement. Like I, I'd prefer to route versus, so that's the first thing. I'd prefer to do layer three route, layer three links. Um, if I have a requirement where I have to span layer two, I'll span layer two. So that's that's the first thing. So that that discussion between layer two, layer three, yep, port I channels. Agree. Now for how many, right? Like what I think I think it's situationally dependent on um the environment. I would always break things up into twos as a default answer. Um, I'm not a fan of single points of failure. High availability, and I've been saying this for a while. High availability and and redundancy and reliability and resiliency, all those buzzwords for network design principles, let's say there's principles there. Um, they're all unstated requirements. They're all things that businesses need and they don't even say it anymore. They're, it's it's really like the network has become <laughs> the plumbing, right? That that they become yeah. the the water or our electricity network. That's it's an it's a it's a utility now. Um and and everyone requires it to work, right? If it doesn't work, well, there's someone's going to pay, right? I'm going to come over there and I'm going to beat you. It's not working. Um, <laughs> but so the point I'm trying to make is that I would, I would make that assumption that it's a requirement. You have to have two of everything um, where, where it's an easy way to do it. It's not making a large complex solution and it makes sense. And at that point, once you have two of everything, then if you need more, you have to justify that, right? If I have to have four links or, or, you know, then why? What is what am I trying to accomplish there? Now, in your situation there, right? So I would not do a bundle of four links in, in a one single layer three port channel. I wouldn't do that. Mm. I would probably split that up into two links and do two layer three port channels across four links, right? So four physical cables, I would take two of them and say, hey, you, you guys are going to be in a port channel and it's a layer three port channel. And then we're going to create that neighborship. I'm going to take the other two and do the exact same thing. And then if I was going to be really smart about it, I would track where I'm physically connecting those links and make sure they're going to different line cards on the devices. Yep. So if I had a line card failure or a soup failure, hey, we're, we're good, right? Because that's the whole point here. Or, or at least a different ASICs on the front panel ports if you've only got one line card you can work yeah. with or one switch you can work with. Yeah, different like ASIC group, right? Yeah, yep. exactly. Yep. Got it. Yep. But that's design, right? That's design in a nutshell right there. Yep, yep, yep. Not that every switch even gives you the ability to do that, but uh, but when you can, when you can. Oh, Zig, we're seventy plus minutes into this recording. We have so much more that we could talk about, but let's let's cherry pick on some some hot topics here. Let's let's talk about EIGRP in SD WAN environments. So SD WAN is a big topic on the Packet Pushers podcast. We talk about it a lot, seeing massive adoption in the industry because it's pretty awesome. Really makes a lot of things better for a lot of folks in their WAN builds. Does EIGRP fit into SD-WAN in some way? What are your thoughts here? I mean, I think it it's still there, right? Like it's it's not like it's going away. Um, you still need an underlying topology, underlay, underlay topology routing, your underlay network, whatever terminology that 
that leverages your your software-defined WAN solution, being vendor agnostic, whatever terminology it uses for the underlay, you still need fast IP connectivity in the underlay, right? Any of these software-defined overlay solutions, you need fast IP connectivity in the underlay. So the, what's the solution there? If you're already running EIGRP today, you can continue to run EIGRP today. If you're running OSPF today, you can continue to run OSPF today. It, it, with Without vendor-specific requirements, right? There's vendor-specific gotchas and requirements. Of course, yep. So I don't want to say that's a blanket, hey, you can run OSPF today in whatever solution. You probably can't um, because there's vendor-specific requirements, constraints. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is that it's still viable. You can still leverage it. You can still use it. A lot of the underlying things, um, it's a design situation, right? It's a design question. You have an underlay network and you have this SD-WAN overlay. So what is your underlay network truly doing? Are there services in your underlay network that your overlay network needs to access? A perfect example might be your overlay SD-WAN solution is going over MPLS links and, and maybe you have a voice circuit or voice, you know, you have SIP trunks. I'm going mm -hmm. voice, right? So you have SIP trunks that you're leveraging from that same MPLS provider. Well, those are not going to inherently be in your overlay. Right? They're going to be in that underlay because they're coming from your provider and you're going to have to inject them into your overlay. Does that make yep. sense? I because you need to pump the voice traffic from like a remote office, let's say, exactly. across the SD-WAN and into that SIP trunk. And so for it to get there, it's got to go from the overlay into the underlay uh, in this routing scenario. You got it. You got yep. it. Okay. Right? And so I would blanket this... That, that's an example, right? That's an example where you need something in the overlay and you need it to be in the, or in, in the, you need something that's in the underlay to be in that overlay. Mm -hmm. Now, if you don't have that requirement, then it really doesn't matter what you're running in your underlay as long as it's fast IP connectivity, in my opinion. You're going to, in some cases, you need to support multicast because some of these overlay solutions require that the underlay is running some sort of multicast, like source specific multicast SSM. Mm -hmm. And so you have to pre-configure that, right? So not that a routing protocol is a, it's not like the routing protocol is going to say you can't run, you know, multicast. Right. But it's more of like, like, hey, you have to be able to run multicast in your underlay. It goes back to fast, equal cost path, IP connectivity. And I would say in the underlay, you want as fast as possible between your edges and your providers um, because that's where you're going to go. You have no control over your providers. Um, if it's internet or if it's MPLS, you don't have control over their network. So you want as fast from your devices to your providers and then across those, those clouds. Well, in, in, okay. So speaking to that scenario, we don't actually have a contiguous EIGRP underlay between the different networks mm -hmm. that we're interconnecting. The SD-WAN again is an overlay, but it's actually like the, the, the bridge between all of exactly. these different networks that we're connecting. So in that scenario, we've got these edges meeting. We've got an SD-WAN edge meeting with an EIGRP edge, let's say, in a, in a headquarters location. Do you have any tips or comments on what that looks like? Are you where, there, where redistributing routes within our SD-WAN into EIGRP and vice versa? Uh, yeah. So I think, I think um, the implication here is that you have to justify the use case. Do you need these routes or not, right? Do you need these SD-WAN routes um, in your underlay or do you need these underlay routes in your, in your overlay? But I think there's a design difference between how we legacy, legacy connected our WAN providers into our network. So when we did this before SD-WAN, 
we had our, our routing adjacencies, let's say it's EIGRP, and we connected to whatever the provider was giving us, right? It, it could be OSPF, it could be BGP, it could be a number of things. Now we technically don't have to share routes like that, right? It, in certain circumstances, we don't actually have to share our internal routes to our provider anymore. We have to neighbor up, right? We have to get yep. our, our SD-WAN connections to connect. So think of your, your two remote sites. You have a remote site here and you have a hub or a data center, right? Those routers, those SD-WAN routers have to connect, right? But outside of that, the MPLS provider or the internet provider, whatever it is, has no need to know what your underlying network is It's seeing is tunnel packets going by. It has no idea what's in there. Exactly, yeah. right? And this is kind of like MPLS, right? This is kind of like how MPLS is, where you don't need to share your link addresses anymore. You just share the loopback addresses and you neighbor everything up. Same concept. So you can simplify things that way. What I would be very careful with, though, is your overlay requires, in, in, to, to form your overlay, your underlay has to have the IPs between the two of them, right? They have to know how to get from point A to point B. If you learn your underlay IPs in your overlay, you're going to have this kind of flapping. Think of back in the day <laughs> where you ran GRA tunnels, right? Yeah. And you did a GRA tunnel from point A to point B. And you're like, hey, why is my GRA tunnel flapping? Boop, I'm trying to do an EIGRP neighborship across boop, this tunnel. And it's boop, going up and down, right? Boop. Up and down, up and down. <laughs> it's because you're learning your underlay networks in your overlay. And then it's bringing down the overlay neighborship because it's learning the network again. So that's, that's just a gotcha, right? You yeah. just got to be careful of that. So when you're doing anything like that with redistribution, because that's what you'd have to do, redistribution, you need to filter, right? You need to properly filter those routes and make sure you understand what's happening. You said something really key at the top of this segment, which was ask yourself the question, do I need these routes to appear in the overlay or the underlay? Mm -hmm. And if so, why? And then make sure that they're learned the right way. Don't assume I have to do full mutual redistribution yeah. between yeah. this section of the network and the overlay and, and the SD-WAN. And I, I, of course, because of course I do, right? Maybe, but maybe not. And so therefore think very carefully about what you need learned. And then uh, as you said, Zig, just like with any redistribution scheme, you're carefully going to have to filter between those routing domains. So critical. It really yeah. is. I mean, it's, and you'll see it real quick when you make something wrong because it's your links are just going to keep going up and down, up and down, up yeah. and down. And you're, you're serious going to be like, why is this happening? <laughs> why is this happening? <laughs> why is this happening to me? So <laughs> to me? Um, so that's my, my rule of thumb you know, especially when you're doing bi-directional redistribution in multiple places. I mean, you, it, because again, in most cases, I'd probably doing that, that requirement in my core, my data center spaces, right? I'd be doing some sort of redistribution in data center. If it was underlay, you need to go to overlay, overlay, you need to go to underlay. That's where I would do it. Um, but if you have a requirement where you need to do it at your edges as well, your remote sites, well, now you have to be super careful, right? Because you're doing it twice. You're doing it in your data centers and at your edge locations. You could have a very, you could create a loop, right? You could create a very large loop and it'd be hard to tell, how to, how to, hard to find. Okay, SD-WAN, certainly a hot topic these days. Let's talk about automation then, because, you know, we got to hit all the buzzwords. Um, <laughs> all the buzzwords, well, right? The, not that this needs to be a long part of the conversation, but is automating EIGRP configuration a, a thing that you've run into? I, I don't know why it wouldn't be, but throw it out there. Yeah, so, I mean, I... I think we automate everything, right? I think let, let's let's forget about APIs and automation tools for a minute. I think us as network engineers and network designers and network architects, we automate everything. We try to. We try to make, we're lazy. That, that's where I, That's my reason. I'm lazy and I don't want to do all the work, so I'm going to automate it. 
Um, so the simplest way of automating these things is we create templates, right? That's we created our yeah. configuration template. I think Ethan, you and I talked about this last time um, at length, or maybe on my show you were on. I think where we have these templates and they're they've been there for 15 years, right? And we have information in there that explains what each command is in like a comment, so we understand what the command is. We don't have to you know go look it up again. We've already learned it, but we haven't used it all you know in five years or three years or whatever time frame. But that template is automation. That template, all we do is copy cut or copy paste, you know, and, and we're good or, or modify it. We tweak it a little bit. So I think we just take that, that automation process and we just, we leverage the same process with, with APIs and mm -hmm. with controllers because we're just automating anyway. We're just the manual process of us changing variables, manually changing those, those placeholders and then applying the config. Well, let's change those placeholders in the controller or let's let the controller change the placeholders. It's the same thing, right? It's the same end goal. Same end result. Well, it, it is a fundamental network automation principle. You got to understand what you're automating before you can automate it. So that that's really what you're saying here. You got to know EIGRP, and then just like anything else in network automation, it is a candidate to be automated. Exactly. And I would I would go if you start doing this right. I'm talking about automating templates, right? And you're going to place them on a new device or changing your configuration. You're going to create a template, paste it on, right? If you start losing using automation, you need to understand the end state. Right. Like you need to understand that, hey, this is where I am and this is where I'm going to. And this is what I should expect to see. What's good behavior? and What's bad behavior? Because your automation system is just a tool. Right. That's all it is. And it doesn't think like we think it's not a it's I mean, it's helpful and there's some logic there, but it's it doesn't know the protocols and, and what you're trying to achieve intuitively. You're telling it, I want to do this. And if you what you want to do is wrong. It's going to be wrong, right? That automation is just a tool. It's going to tell. It's going to do what you want it to do. It will happily automate your failure. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, so I mean, automation is great. I love it, and I'm I'm a full. I'm on board. I may not be fully up on the dev net certs yet, and the other automation stuff out there. I have other things in my plate, but definitely embrace automation for sure. And I think you can use it with everything, not just EIGRP. Well, Zig, this has been a. Dude, I love conversations like this. This is outstanding. And you just you just share and share and share what's on your mind with the community. Just uh, thank you, man. Thank you for what you do. You have a lot out there, not just on shows like this, but you got your own network of content. Just lay it on us, man. Tell us uh, how we can get more Zig. Yeah, uh, Ethan, I appreciate it, man, as always. So I'll be as quick as I can, right? I know we're, I think we're at like the two hour mark, right? Or no, something like that. No, almost an hour and a half, almost. Almost, Almost an hour, hour and a half. half. Sorry, my math is wrong. Um, bad math. I'm not a math major, I promise. Yeah, so so uh, I run a network design podcast, a network design platform, let's say. Uh, Zigbits, uh, Zigbits.tech is the uh, blog and the show notes for all the podcasts. You can go to the main uh, podcast page. It's Zigbits.tech slash ZNDP. That's Z is in zebra, NDP. It's a play in words, right? It's me being nerdy. Zigbits is zig, right? And bits, tons of bits and bytes. And I think Ethan likes the zigabytes are faster than gigabytes, right? So <laughs> I am a subscriber to that podcast, Zig. I do. I listen to it. It's great stuff. Yeah. So I transitioned over the years. It used to be like a, a bi-weekly podcast. It's turned into a weekly podcast. And we do network design fundamentals, principles, techniques, frameworks. I mean, it's real world too. We do real world use cases, design use cases, automation use cases, and I get people like Ethan, industry experts on the show. We talk about design and design situations. And the whole point is to provide you context and, and to really teach you network design. I think there's I think there's a gap 
and I'm trying to fill this gap that we don't we don't learn network design early enough in our careers. No, we learn how to turn the knobs before yeah, we learn like, why we should turn the knobs. We learn how to configure on the command line and we type away and we're like, hey, I did it. I configured EIGRP because that's what we're talking about, right? But, you know, it's not designed effectively or, or correctly. So that's what I'm trying to solve is that it doesn't matter where you are in the industry. If you're just starting out, you know, you're brand new, I'm going to help you learn how to network, how to design networks, right? And, and make them effective networks to make businesses successful and companies successful, right? Because that's truly what this is all about. It's not about making the network, you know, this spiffy new thing, shiny and golden and, and diamonds and, and whatever, unicorns. It's about making that business successful, whatever that business needs to be successful. That's money or if that's a service it provides. And everything I do is based on that that idea, right? Is to- and I, I will confirm this. I've listened to a bunch of Zig's podcasts and uh, and poked around the website too. And those all those principles come come through in what you do, Zig. So there's the podcast, but you have more stuff to offer. Exactly. So um, thanks. Uh, you're always directing me. I appreciate it, Ethan. You're a good man. Um, so you're like, hey, you're, you got to get on, co- on on course. Yeah. So um, I am creating a network design course. Uh, it's a veteran agnostic uh, certification agnostic course. Now that doesn't mean that you can't use it for your, you know, other specific certification needs. You can learn all the network design requirements, principles, fundamentals in the course. It is not done yet, but I'm hoping to have it done this month. Um, and if you want to join the email list to get weekly updates, it's zigbits.tech slash network design. And again, uh, the whole point is to solve that 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 goal, right? That gap, meet that gap and teach everyone how to design networks. So this month, in case you're in a time machine, it's March 2021. So oh, March, yeah, April sorry. 2021, Zig, you're hoping to have that network design course available to folks. Exactly. Sorry, I didn't I think of the yeah. time machine, right? March, March <laughs> 2021 is my goal. It was supposed to be February. You know, life happens and you don't know what you don't know. So all of the content, just to be clear, is on zigbits.tech. I don't need to dwell any longer, right? Just if you want to hear more about me and what I'm doing, just go there. You can find the email list. You can find me. You can find me on Twitter as well, zig underscore ziga. And just reach out, you know, Um, I'm here. I'm here to help. So just reach out whenever you need. Great stuff. And thank you for sharing with the Packet Pushers community today, Zig, these deep network design discussions where we really get nerdy with uh, protocols and stuff. Oh, we don't do them every week, but they are fun when we do them. And again, thank you for your time. And if you're out there listening, hey, thank you for your time. Uh, We have a lot of content at PacketPushers.net. Other podcasts like IPv6 Buzz, which I mentioned, we have the Day 2 Cloud Show, which is hosted by me and Ned Belavance. We talk to folks in the cloud community about how to do your cloud networking, how to host your compute in the cloud, and all kinds of things related to that, such as uh, automation and career And there's the Network Break podcast where we do news and analysis. That's with Greg Farrow and Drew Conroy Murray and more. You can find all of the shows we have to offer, packetpushers.net slash subscribe. And we too are on Twitter at Packet Pushers. And we're on LinkedIn if you'd like to follow us there. We have a free weekly newsletter too. And this is not one of these newsletters like we get your email address and then we sell it. No, we don't do anything like that. We just keep up. We help you keep up with what's going on in the networking industry. We feature a lot of blogs that we've read, technical stuff, things that we think are important, bits of news that are worth sharing. That's all at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. It's absolutely free. We have a Slack group that you might like to join. It's uh, again, another freebie for you. As a Packet Pushers listener, packetpushers.net slash slack. Read the rules. We have three simple rules about how to participate as a good citizen of the community in our Slack group. Join in. There's over 1,500 network engineers that are participating in that, going back and forth, asking opinions, solving problems, just helping each other out. And it's a joint mix of people that are practitioners and people that are working for vendors. Everybody's just helping each other out, and it's a marketing-free zone. 
Go ahead and sign up there. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.